Hello, and welcome to Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and I use they-them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively-run publisher dedicated to producing and curating inclusive and intersectional culture informed by anarchistic ideals. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine, read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. We also make these really cool little quarter-sized zines of the monthly feature, which you can get mailed to you anywhere in the world if you sign up for a Zine of the Month Club on our Patreon. But you can also read along for free on our website, tangledwilderness.org. This month, we have a short memoir piece by Molly Bidam called Mall Parts. It's a non-linear story of vignettes about working in strip clubs for 10 years. After the story, stay for an interview with the author, along with a special guest interviewer. The word of the month this month is the unlikely origin and meaning of what might be your name. Mall Parts by Molly Bidam. Narrated by Bee Flowers and published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. This is a work of truth, but not necessarily of facts. The story showcases industry standard gendered violence and fat phobia. Please read with care. 1. In Storyville, I was Molly the Third. M O L L Y. It's easy to enunciate over the shrieking soundscape that's honking from the DJ booth. Young customers thought it was a cool drug reference, and older ones just thought I was Irish. Every baby stripper tries to name herself Persephone or some shit like that. Isis changed her name eventually, but you'd be surprised by how long she'd double down for. Name yourself something easy to scream and try not to rhyme with the other girls, though at times it can't be helped. Molly the First was Entertainer of the Month until she got cut up into little pieces by her boyfriend and was said to haunt the filthy dressing room of the scrotal beige-pink double-wide known as the Treehouse Club. Bambi even had a seance there for her once. Molly the Second made bank when she was pregnant. Pregnancy money! The girls excitedly buzzed around her in terms dabbing her vaginal discharge behind their ears like it was a fine fragrance. Pheromones, I guess, Harley shrugged when I raised an eyebrow. It's a thing, just like ovulation money. She kept putting off the abortion. What? Can't I just make some more money until then? We can't afford to take time off for the recovery yet anyway. Just a little longer. It's not like it matters. She slurred over her third bottle of wine and second pack of cigarettes and gestured at her abdomen. Her loser boyfriend didn't drive, but he kept her pilled to the gills, so eventually I packed her into the car in the last possible week, and we made the long journey to and from the clinic. She told her boyfriend, her ex, and her side piece that they were the father. Eric offered to send her money from his prison commissary fund, and Pablo from his earnings as a street musician, and even Emil, who she'd never slept with, inquired about donating his bartending tips. She wouldn't take any of it. Her boyfriend didn't offer her shit all except a shift meal from the hippie pizza place, so I took $40 for gas and a Valium out of his bag while he was in the bathroom. Fuck him. Molly II was Entertainer of the Month until she came out to her first-generation Irish Catholic family that she was a gay abortion-having slut for Satan. I think she just wanted them to love her anyway, 
but her dad told her never to mention it, and she disappeared after that. Brandy once took all the caps from Molly II's lipstick and wrote Molly equals baby killer on the mirror with her most wanton shade of red. When I moved states and changed my name to Molly II, I came in second in every contest of every club I entered, but I always still got hired. They liked my face and vibe, but I needed to lose 10 pounds or else get demoted to day shift. First, I lost to Brooke, who technically was banned from working there, but since it was open to the public, they couldn't stop her from cleaning up on amateur night once a week. Then I lost to Dahlia, who honestly had the best moves. Good for her. The Candy Club girls see me nursing a slice of pizza after my stage set and have opinions about my priorities. Fancy is engaged to the manager, but her sister caught him cheating with another dancer again. They ambushed him outside his office, and the police and the fire department came. Crystal had white dreads and called herself the stripper professor. She told me I just needed to have positive energy and money would come to me. Unfortunately, she was right. I saw 60-year-old Talia leading a young sailor by the pinky into a skybox with a wink. Elena and Sasha were a mother-daughter pair from Moscow, whose only dance move was fist-pumping to techno, but at least they knew how to have fun. They chattered excitedly at me in Russian when I squeaked out a kektala. Lucy had just turned 21, and her regulars were waiting outside to take her to champagne rooms. Felony danced by her real name there. I cried into my rumplemins. On stage, Brandy and Roxy broke a bachelor's nose with their pubic bones the night before his wedding, during a move called the seesaw. I guess it was fucked up that Brandy got all that blood on her, but I felt like she deserved it after the baby killer thing. After Lola OD'd and died, the Treehouse Club was double haunted, Bambi drawled, between drags on her misty slim menthol. She got a portrait of Lola tattooed on her leg, so I guess she would know. The dressing room at Daisy Dukes was in the slave quarters of a historic property. The house itself they had made into themed VIP rooms, a hunting lodge, a honeymoon suite, a beachside cabana, all playing softcore porn on the ubiquitous built-in flat screens. The things those velour walls have smelt. You had to go up the external catwalk in your civilian clothes to the dressing room through the courtyard, which is now the stage and bar, and back down the winding rail in your heels. Rosie picked me up in their ambulance. They even let me turn the siren on to part the drunk stragglers still meandering through the pre-dawn miasma of the quarter. The old DJ would play anything I wanted, but he went to jail for child pornography. The new DJ would play anything I wanted, but he kept asking me for my number. The new new DJ was a robot. Girls, 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 it's showtime. Come on down to the stage. Make some noise. Here's Molly. She's gonna pop that little top for ya. So get tippin'. Two. It was Thanksgiving at the Treehouse Club. The church ladies brought catering plus gift bags with cheap jewelry and perfume samples and chick tracks. Kylie was applying rouge to her nipples while the church ladies fawned over us and the state of our souls in the dressing room. It's not too late to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, they said as Kylie adjusted her thong. One inch regulation pussy coverage, just like the court ordered. Thanks, I'm okay for now, but appreciate ya, Kylie said as she put turkey and stuffing on a plate.
She had a look on her face that said she'd be giving the jewelry to her sister. It still had a price tag on the back, 99 cents. A diamond from one of her regulars glinted in her nostril as she slithered through the curtain and out onto the stage for her six-minute set. As was the rule, she removed her top by the second song despite the yawning emptiness at the rack, the stage front seating. A club's house mom, conceptually, was a complicated figure. Many superstar moms reigned over the Storyville dressing rooms with tampons and safety pins and eyelash glue and granola bars, and they gave pep talks better than Dwayne the Rock Johnson. In this particular corner of the rural South, though, the house mom was there mostly to make sure you didn't fuck anybody and weren't fucked up, which is ironic. Late enough into the night, you knew she was gonna be yelling, I'm gonna suck a dick on that great goose tonight. Dancers can't drink alcohol in the club in this country, but the customers didn't know that. Ordering a dancer a drink came with well vodka, aka water, and earned you a couple extra bucks on the side from the bartender. Once we had a new waitress who didn't know the laws, though, and got us all fucking tanked. They ended up firing her, but not for that. Dancer management liaison Harley ran into the new waitress meeting club regulars at the nearby Waffle House after hours. The pro tip was to drive across town to eat at the diner at 3 a.m. with your depressed taxi driver friends, and there wouldn't be a customer in sight when you peeled your eyelashes off at the dinner table. Alex used to bartend, but looked just like Dancer Daisy. Daisy was dating the club owner, they always are, and could sing like an angel. Daisy moved on, and after that, the drunks howled for Alex to sing them a song until they were pacified by the tits bouncing on stage and the UFC pay-per-view fight on the TV and the $17 Budweiser in their hand. The club owner was now dating Yuki, who was the only stripper I've ever seen get a Craigslist missed connection. She wore a lot of glitter, which is a faux pas. Customers do not want to go home to their wife covered in glitter, Yuki taught us our first pole movements before the club opened. Shower and don't use lotion the day you work, Yuki told us sagely. Slippery. She gestured to the spinning pole. We had a college girl make $1,000 on her first night here just last week. The managers were telling the truth for once. Ava had a champagne room with a butch dyke who fell in love with her at first sight, which is the dream, but rarely happened in reality. Ava was entertainer of the month, but you don't get a Walmart gift card for that anymore. Just your name on the wall. Three. Dancer management liaison Harley had a staff position created just for them. What I knew that no one else did was that they were fucking the DJ in the booth during their shift. But you're such a beautiful girl, the DJ groaned at them when they corrected him for misgendering. On weekends, there was a cookout on the smoking porch, weather permitting, hot dogs and hamburgers. I was vegetarian, so Harley just gestured vaguely and passed me a bag of chips and a cigarette. Anna had the deepest fake tan I'd ever seen and was entertainer of the month. What are you talking about? She said when she rolled in after midnight. I'm so pale. I saw on the camera that she gave blowjobs in the VIP, but I was told that's just how we do it now. I ostensibly didn't have a problem with that, but I wished there'd been a memo or something. My car was fucking totaled because I went off my meds and crashed into a bridge, so Emil picked me up on his motorcycle. 
My sandals broke, so I was wearing a bejeweled pair of 7-inch pleasers until we decided to eat a breakfast of lukewarm bar food on an abandoned rooftop, and I shed my shoes entirely as the sun started threatening to peak above the horizon. We went so fast on the Gixer that I couldn't keep my eyes open. I saw God, Emil panted when we got home. We blew right by that motherfucker. At the Cougar Club in the city, there was no pole. We wore floor-length gowns, and the restaurant inside had a Michelin star. It was a full nude club, though, and Molly II and I had been informed we'd be needing labioplasties if we wanted to make any real money. We made some walking around money off of a few neckbeards in sweater vests who loved how natural we were, read as hairless but with original vulvas intact, and never went back. The bartender at Exquisite in the rural deep south used to be a dancer, but she threw her back out. She would still get on the bar and drop it low when no one was there, which was basically all the time since the raids. There was a swimming pool in the courtyard and a cop car parked outside. You could swim with a dancer for an hourly fee and the clubs provided swim trunks. The entire Friday night shift was me, an 18-year-old girl named Ellie, who'd never left the immediate vicinity, and a 50-year-old battle axe named Chevelle, who taught me how to drink her signature beverage, the Small Hot Mess, which was all the clear well liquors with Red Bull and a splash of blue Caracal. Two customers came in the entire night, and the cop car had its lights on the whole time. We made off with $12 each and a drunken sense of kinship by closing time. No one gave a single lap dance, but they were done in concrete rooms with a folding chair and a dirty mirror, and I honestly felt pretty happy with my $12 and sisterly solidarity. Back in Storyville, the pole princesses had successfully shamed me out of eating pizza for dinner. Are you sure that's really a good idea, Molly? A female customer came up and tipped me. I used to be a dancer. I understand how hard of a job it is. And I smiled as she slid me $5. I was motorboating her face with my tits when she said, My friends said you're not even that fit, and I told them they have no idea how hard it is. My smile faded. The dressing room was empty except for Foxy, who was like full body sobbing. We'd never met, but I brought her some Sprite, and eventually she told me why she was crying. I just love Dolly Parton so much, she wailed into my shoulder. This went on for half an hour until she got in one of the dressing room's resident tanning beds to calm herself. I could hear her hiccuping softly over the drone of the UV light bulbs. Molly, you're on stage right now, a hostess clucked at me. Shit, 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 shit. I stumbled down four flights of stairs and rolled my ankle on every platform. Eloise was killing time on stage to one of my songs and just glared at me as I hobbled over to the pole to relieve her. Tatiana sent a selfie of her holding the day's newspaper to her boyfriend when she clocked in every night. I tipped out the DJ, the bartenders, the waitresses, the bouncers, the valet, the house mom. The manager reminded me and Coco to watch our figures. Coco could bench press that dweeb and I could see the urge to do so brewing behind the fans of her giant mink lashes. I counted my singles while Andy picked us up in the turbo diesel and we crammed five strippers into the single cab like the world's sluttiest clown car. 990 fucking nine! Foxy tucked one last dollar into my bra to bring me up to a grand. For good luck and because I hate prime numbers. I didn't correct her. 
The sun was coming up and the cobblestone streets were full of piss, but mostly clear of people at that point. Coco smelled like tobacco and waffle cones and had made all her money the previous night off a Yankee army boy who had just wanted her to roll him cigarettes and purr about how she was going to fix him up some cornbread all night long, like a wholesome mommy who also twerked upside down to nine-inch nails. I hate the candy club, she said, snapping her gum. The lap dance booths give me a rash. We lamented the fact that we couldn't get hired at the most upscale club because of our tattoos. Plus, Nikki had a gold tooth on top of that. Who wants Waffle House? Somebody yelled over the grinding of street sweeper trucks. Hash browns, we chanted in unison. Hash browns, hash browns. Molly Badam enjoys smoking weed and directing pornography. She's live, nude, and waiting for you. Molly be damn at proton.me. Hello, and welcome to the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast. Um, I have with me as a very special treat today, my dear friend and friend of the pod, uh, Ren Arai, um, who is going to be kind of conducting the interview today. Ren, would you like to introduce yourself with, you know, just your name, pronouns, and uh, what, what you're here for in the world, slash specifically here today for as well? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, my name is Ren. My pronouns are they, them. We were joking before this podcast that Inman was just going to introduce me as Hot Mess, but my last name is Arai, and I actually realized that just like means the same thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm here because I am crashing the podcast that one of my favorite humans in the universe hosts, because another one of my favorite humans in the universe is being interviewed. And so, yeah, I'm basically just here to like crash and hang out with like two of my best friends on a Friday night you know? <laughs> well, we're very glad to have you. And I mean, I've been trying to get you on this podcast for over a year. Um, <laughs> so to, to finally get you on here as a co-host slash interviewer, we'll just have to do until, until you finally submit something to us. I have something that I have promised you all by the end of the year. So I'll say that on air. <laughs> To hold myself to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just impatient. I'm impatient. And that's, <laughs> I, yes, yes. But yeah, so I'm going to kind of just be um, holding the container of the interview today. And um, also, I've been told that I'm going to be doing some some wrangling because as organized as Ren is, when they are in the presence of our contributor today. Um, things do seem to get a little messy and awry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, would uh, Molly, would you like to introduce yourself uh, with um, your name, pronouns, and uh, what what you're here for today? Or and anything else you want to tell us about yourself? Hi. Hi, friends. Uh, my name is Molly Badam. I my pronouns are she, her. I'm also kind of here for the vibes to hang out with my guys, but um, 
you know, I contributed a little, a little something, something to the strangers library, uh, I guess. And I'm here to talk about that today. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, and I'm going to do a bad kid thing just to start off the, the interview. Uh, Molly, would you, I, I know we just listened to your, your, um, your wonderful piece, um, mall parts, but I always like to start off the interviews by asking the author to, um, kind of just tell us what the piece is about in their own words in whatever way you feel like. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So my piece is about some of my time as a, I think I want to say I'm coming up on being a 10-year sex industry veteran. Been doing it for a little while. And so my piece is meant to uh, evoke the sights and smells of the strip club dressing room more than anything else. I really want to transport you right there with me. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to you, Ren. Cool. Yeah. So I have these questions that are actually just Inman's questions. Um, I'm really taking the opportunity during this podcast to be a little bit less prepared than I feel like I usually have to be. Um, But that's really easy because there's already these amazing questions that are written. So I, um, I have some more specific questions later, but I think that these are fantastic. And I want to start there. So Molly, I guess the first thing I want to ask you is what's the story behind this story? How did this piece sort of like come to fruition? Yeah. So it's pretty, there's a pretty simple answer. The short answer is did a little ketamine therapy. And uh, I don't know if y'all have ever participated in ketamine therapy, but ketamine is a dissociative. Um, We can cut this out also if it's not appropriate, but uh, (laughs) it can be a really embodying experience and really kind of transport you in a sensory way to different memories that you may not have access to otherwise in a, like a sober state. So I was doing a little bit of ketamine therapy um, and I was spending some time with a close friend who we were just kind of, you know, kicking around and telling, telling stories from the good old days, glory days a little bit. And they were like, that thing you just said is very insane. And I think you should write it down. (laughs) Um, And I just went, okay. And that was basically how, how I started putting pen to paper. Cool. Yeah. And I know I saw some early drafts of it and I was like really struck seeing those, even just like the beginnings of that piece, like sort of the language. And I have actually like when I reread it, the final piece today, I made some highlights of of sort of um, sections that I think were really amazing where you just say these like truly weird things um, that I think really bring the story to life. I think about, especially about the part with... um, Foxy sobbing over Dolly Parton, which uh, people who li- people who are listening have just heard. It's so weird, right? Like just like full body <laughs> crying over Do- like loving Dolly Parton. Um, but I feel like there's so many moments like that throughout this whole piece, and so I felt like it was a real treat, even reading those earlier drafts where you're like still sort of figuring out the structure and where you want to go with it. Like those moments really stood out to me, and I was I was very excited um, to see where it went. So uh, my next question is, what was that process like, right? That original process of you, like uh, your friend suggesting that you write this down um, and then shifting over into like making it this full-blown piece that's now like the Stranger's Monthly Zine. Yeah, it was 
I got a lot of encouragement from from you, Ren. Uh, you know, you did look at the like first. You're the first person I sent a first draft to. You know, um, so you really got to participate really early on in the process. And yeah, I it's pretty stream of consciousness. You've heard the story, so you know it's that shouldn't come to shock anybody. It's gotten a little bit rearranged, a little bit polished um, since Ren, since you first saw it. But I, I just have these really evocative sense memories that I wanted to describe that are a little bit hard to take, take an embodied experience and put it into words. You know what I mean? But I kind of, I just gave it my best crack at it. Um, so many of these things are just sort of a flurry of like sights and smells. And I'm just like, I don't even know how to explain, you know. <laughs> some of the some some of the things I've seen are truly wacky um, and really defy explanation. But for the, some of the things that are a little more straightforward, uh, I just tried to I just tried to be as truthful as possible. Honestly, their names are changed to protect the sinful, but the story is chock full of actual conversations I've had with actual people. Totally, yeah, and I love that aspect of it where it's like a story about experiences because like strangers is like an anarchist ish publisher publishes anarchist adjacent things. And I think that we do see um, like a lot of theory. And even if that's like really interesting, exciting theory, I know that you mentioned a previous strangers piece, grin and bear it all by Luna Celeste Luna um, as an influence, Luna Celeste as an influence. And that's like such an amazing piece. And it's also more traditional theory. So I, I really loved how this piece like was a story. It was, it was about experiences, right? It was about like weirdness and how like life doesn't quite match up to like these platitudes we can say, you know? And so I'm wondering, yeah, I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about that, about like what a story like this can do versus something that's more theoretical, which is awesome. But I also think we see more typically within like anarchist and radical discourse. Um, and sometimes they get a little bit bored of it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I so I am strongly influenced by Luna Celeste piece, Grin and Bear It All. It is definitely like pretty dense. Um, I think she really crams a lot of uh, crams a lot of like theory into a pretty short piece um, that I think is really, really important. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a decade old and has stood the test of time, um, which not everything that not every communique that comes out of every forest does is what I would say. Um, Fair enough. You know. Yeah. And it's a a great piece, I should say. Um, But just like using that to think about sort of those differences, you know. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that a little bit. Um, I actually I so I sent a copy of the story to Luna Celeste and got a little bit of feedback from her and you know, she was like, wow, I really, I feel like I can smell it. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, really brings you back, huh? You know, I, I'm just not a very linear person, uh, which Ren can attest to, um, having known me for more than half my life. (laughs) Um, but it's just not, it's not in my nature. I have sort of like a frenetic energy and that's the way that I also that's like the framework through which I view the world around me. My lens is a little bit ADD and not just, you know, uh, not just the things that happen are, uh, also I kind of think that a strip club dressing room is a little bit outside of time and space. 
Um, it's kind of, I, I like to call it, it's part of the goblin universe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like things, things roll under couches. You move the couch back. It's gone forever. You know, it just, it's just not, it's not subject to the rules of our reality the way that I feel like a lot, most things are. Totally. Yeah. I think that, so kind of like you said, like real, like real life, real life has like a hard time fitting into kind of like conventional, like framing methods for stories, you know? And like a lot of narratives that we're used to are like these like very like typical arcs of like, there's a concrete thing going on. People move through conflict or whatever. And you know, I like those stories, but I love a non-linear way of telling a story. And and I th- I think these like little like snippets and pieces and interactions and like moments that you describe do a really good job of like still telling a story. Like we get these vivid ideas of like what this place is like, um, what these people are like, and you and there it even is like this little like like arc that goes through it. And I think that's like a lot more reminiscent of like how life is. And I don't know. It's, it's a thing that strikes me about like memoir sometimes is like the ways that people choose to represent like events that are not clean and not like uh, polished or like being, um, reorganized to like fit a convenient like story narrative i don't know dude i don't know if either of y'all have that's not really a question but yeah yeah and the other the other thing is that these my story really is a series of vignettes more than anything else that has been kind of shaped into um something with a little bit more of a narrative arc um but it's also it's highlights from from over the course of many years, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's some really standout memories that I had to kind of, uh, fish out of the depths. It's like your best um, of album of working in strip clubs. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to have another volume. Maybe we'll have now that's what I call stale thong volume two. I don't totally. know. Yeah. Hell Yeah. Yeah, I am. So I am preparing a longer version um, that hopefully strangers will have something to do with when it's finished. My timeline is about for this September on that. So, ooh, that oh. is that is news to me. I love learning things uh, <laughs> on on the podcast. Um, I mean, you know, I I'm biased, but please send it our way when it's done. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. So I want to get into this, like, all that, like, why is this story important stuff? But, like, as a nerd about the way stories are told, like, I think maybe everyone on here, I also wanted to mention that you keep bringing up smells. And I've been, like, very deep recently into reading about the sensorium and how, like, smell and taste are feminized and thinking about how, like, sex work is this traditionally feminized industry, right? And I love that you talk about and there is so much smell and there is so much taste in this piece um, and like bringing those senses to the forefront versus like, just like what is the visual, what is seen. So that's something that I was thinking about too. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Like 
Maybe that's like too nerdy or something, but <laughs> no, yeah. no, I love that. And I'd love to hear more about that. Um, I definitely want to like express that I'm coming. I come from a particular position in sex work. I am like a thin white woman who has had access to uh, resources that not everybody has had in sex work and that this isn't like a piece that is meant to mm-hmm. give like a voice to the voiceless or some something like that. This is just like some weird shit that happened in my 20s. <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. Um, uh, and I'm not I'm not trying to express that this is like a universal experience of sex work by any means or anything like that. Totally. Yeah. I think, yeah, just like the individualization of like, I'm like really interested in general literature that, that looks at like smell, taste, these senses that have been kind of subjugated along like very gendered lines. So, yeah. And I also, I also think your like olfactory experiences I have read, I cannot source this right now, but are like one of the largest triggers of memory. I've heard that too. Yeah. Um, and so I'll like go around, I'll like take a little detour to Victoria's Secret in the mall and smell all the disgusting body sprays. You know what I mean? And be like, mm-hmm. oh my God, it smells like Nikki. Oh, remember Nikki? <laughs> you know what I mean? And things like that. It's very, it's very, um, when I'm in the right mood, it can be a really tender, a tender way to recreate a memory for me. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so kind of getting into the meat of, of some of what we're, we've been gesturing at. The next question on this very um, awesome list of questions from Inman is, why is this an important story to tell? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I don't have a great answer. I think that the more diverse voices you hear in sex work, the better really from any industry, um, Mm -hmm. but especially one that is criminalized, one that is marginalized totally and oppressed by the state, like deliberately, Mm -hmm. um, especially under the guise of like saving children or whatever, which we all know is like Mm -hmm. just something they say to get the bill passed and things like that. Totally. Um, I danced during, um, one of the big uh, financial recessions of the 2000s, or I guess like early aughts. Um, but there's, yeah, I uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like the more the merrier so is a little how I feel about it. I'm just like, I want everyone to know how like weird and surreal these experiences are. Um, I want people to know that it's not, it's not necessarily what you see in movies. It's not necessarily what you hear in books. Mm-hmm. And it's not, uh, there's, there's a really strong narrative fed by, by the powers that be that these are people who are not consenting to the work that they're doing. Um, you hear that a lot from like liberal, like, or radical feminists even, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that there's, the more voices you get, the more room for nuance there is. And nuance is incredibly important in really any discourse. Totally. Like so many different experiences within within this one field of work. Yeah. And and also like how else is this story being told? Yeah. So how else is the story being told? Um, there, I mean, there's a ton of writing about sex work out there. I'm like far from the only person like even in our immediate like professional circles who is giving voice to these kinds of experiences. 
there, I don't know if now is a good time to plug some of my favorite writing about. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever read anything by Irene Silt, who is a sex worker uh, and a poet. Um, They have a book out called The Tricking Hour and a book called My Pleasure that I think are some of the best contemporary writings on sex work that are available just in general. Hell yeah. Um, What, or like, could could you paint paint a picture for us um, about like what kinds of things um, they write about? Yeah, um, I I find Irene's writing also pretty. It can be a sensory experience for sure. Um, I I don't know what pronouns Irene uses. I guess I'm gonna go ahead with uh, she her, um, which I want to say is correct, <laughs> and we can cut that out later. And um, <laughs> but. Um, Irene is really intellectual the way that I think something like Luna Celeste, Peace, Grin and Bear at all is very intellectual, um, which is sort of outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, I'm definitely like a sort of a scattered person is sort of a, I know I like, I feel like I found my education in the dumpster a little bit, you know okay, what I mean? You, you like found, I, I would say that you are an intellectual <laughs> Maybe, maybe like a like a trash queen intellectual, but like yeah, I wouldn't sell yourself short on that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I appreciate that, but it, it feel it feels like I feel like I'm I'm painting a word picture a little bit more than I'm like drawing a word square. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> um, can I can I ask a kind of a question about about this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's maybe a funny question, but, um, but it's, it's something I, it's something I think about and maybe it's like something that I think about in a way where I'm, uh, in, in the being a skeptic about a lot of things, sometimes I feel uh, like it's important to ask questions about like how things get done, but mm-hmm. also like, I don't know, whatever real, real things to consider. Um, so I have like in keeping with like, strangers kind of like mission like um and my whole life i've been highly skeptical of like over intellectualized um things um and specifically around like experiences and narratives and stuff and i i i guess i'm wondering like how how you feel about like like the into intellectualization of like like the stories of sex workers and like sex work as like a thing that exists in like a huge way in, in our culture and like cultures across the planet. Yeah. It's a complicated question, right? Cause there's so many different kinds of sex work. Um, <laughs> and there's so many different, uh, it's like easy to push them into a very specific narrative if you are delineating between things like uh, types of sex work that are, for instance, like criminalized versus types of sex work that are not. Um, And you end up with this sort of like clean, dirty, we call it the hierarchy dichotomy. Um, Yeah, I know, but (laughs) um, we we love a little wordplay. We love a little wordplay over in, over in hooker land. Um, (laughs) I love that. Yeah, nobody on this podcast likes wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
I also think that there is, um, I'm sorry, Inman, I'm a little ADD. You're going to have to backtrack for me one more time. And Oh, totally. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's like, I'm wondering if there's like complexities to like over or if, if there's any feeling of like over in the over intellectualization of sex work. Like, yes. um, yeah. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. I would, I would argue that academic circles love to like frame it as something that they, they can look at like an equation a little bit, mm-hmm. like they can plug you in to, um, where, where you fit in a particular narrative in order to shape the story. Um, and it also, I don't want to sell anybody short is the thing. Um, and you know, like people I know who have been houseless streetwalkers are like incredible, like scholars of their mm-hmm. craft. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think there's, there's like an overarching narrative that is usually like a white middle, middle, lower class, um, usually cis women or at least AFAB people. Um, you know, people want, people want to know that you do it for the right reasons. Um, and they would try to intellectualize why someone would do something that they think is debasing or degrading or, uh, potentially not consensual um for a living and uh i want to go ahead and backtrack and say that i don't think that consenting adults engaging in sex work is inherently non-consensual i know there's a lot of argument about that Mm -hmm. but it's just not you know whatever i there's plenty of things i do for money that i don't really want to do in my uh in my day-to-day totally Yeah, yeah yeah um so how does this story connect to the broader world Oh, big question. Uh, so it connects to a broader world um, in the way that it's like it's a it's a specific set of memories of a facet of my like career. Um, but it's not the way that kind of the way that like somebody who is. Uh, a professional swimmer is more than just a swimmer, right? They're still like a person um, Mm -hmm. with varied like thoughts and experiences and interests. Um, A person who spends a lot of time with like pruny fingers, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, A very wet person. (laughs) Sorry. Just one really wet human. Just a soggy human. Um, I don't know how to answer this question. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess just like, how does it connect to the broader world? Or like maybe thinking about how this story connects to other narratives that maybe aren't about working in the sex industry, but are about like, other ways that like, capitalism and the patriarchy and these other stuff um, suck, you know? Yeah, so I do think that sex workers in particular get a really special taste of the place that capital and patriarchy intersect Mm -hmm. in a way that other people just don't get which I do think like makes us really like experts in that particular, like that particular intersection of the way that capital plays out in its control of human bodies, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and what bodies are worthy and what bodies are deemed unworthy. Totally. Yeah. Uh, like, or like that valueless. Stark, stark contrast, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people want it to be really cut and dry, right? They want to be able to be like, that is good and that is bad. But mm-hmm. most things are really don't, as we know, most things don't really like fit into no. one of those categories. It's always more complicated than you think it is. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. We live in one big gray world. Yeah. It's gray. It's gray all the way down. All the way down. Just gray on gray on gray. <laughs> um. <laughs> And I really like this last question because the thing about Molly is that, so I feel like I'm a person who I like do the things I've always done and people know that I do them and it's kind of not like that exciting or surprising, but I feel like you will often just like totally surprise me. You'll be like, yeah, I'm really good at drawing or like, yeah, I like just recorded this song I'm singing and, and I really love that. Um, and so this question is, how did you get started in writing? But I'm also thinking about how you were like, yeah, I wrote this thing and this is probably going to make me sound bad on air and that's fine. But like, sometimes people tell me that like I, I teach writing. That's one of the things I do. And I am a writer and you know, they send me something and it's like interesting and cool, but it's like, it has a long way to go, you know? Whereas I feel like you were like, I wrote this thing, look at it. And then I was like, this is amazing. So um, I kind of love this question. How did you get started in writing? Because I feel like it's going to have like a more, um, wending answer or a more like fragmented answer than like most people who would get this question. I don't know. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never written anything that wasn't for school. Um, this is, and I went to school for hard sciences. So this is my first creative writing project period that I've done in my life. And this it really kind of comes down to friendship, Bren. Um, mm-hmm. I got a lot of really good encouragement from from you and from other like professional writers, editors in our lives who I showed the initial drafts to and were really, really encouraging. And we're like, I'd love to see this fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is that I didn't, ha- if I didn't have like a supportive community of people around me, it might have, that first draft might have never gone anywhere, or done anything. You mm-hmm. know, it might have just been a diary entry. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, and having that. Kinda... Yeah. I have a, I have a kind of maybe fun question. Um, did you, have you, have you like talked to any of like your, like, I, I guess I, I don't know if you were writing this at all while, like while working with any of the people that you write about, but um, like to have, like if you were, were, were you like, t- like telling people about, the thing you were writing or I don't know. Yeah. So I did tell a lot of people I, um, like I said, I changed, I changed names, but mm-hmm. I, I got a consent from a lot of folks before, including their tidbits in my story, um, for public consumption. Um, yeah. and you know, I was like, Hey, what do you want your name to be? You know, <laughs> and, uh, stuff like that. So I did, I did share it around a lot for, for feedback sake and also just for the encouragement that people are like, yes, this is something that I'm interested in. Um, which, cause I, I'm coming at it from like from nothing, right. From zero. Mm-hmm. I went from zero to 60. I was just like, I wrote a thing. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, 
I don't know. I spread it. I, I'm not shy is what I would say. I spread it around, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And w- like, what did folks, what did folks think about it? Like, or like, ha- like how, wh- like, what was it like for, do you think for folks who like, like reading these like, like fun anecdotes, uh, like about, you know, themselves? Um, did it, if any, if anyone shared with you? Yeah, I think the biggest piece of feedback that I got was like, oh, I totally forgot that even happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, that part of that time in my life is such a blur. Like I, you know, it's like for a lot of people, especially like people who are um, dancing, you know, it might just be something you do for a little while to like get by or people do Mm -hmm. it to like get through college, people do whatever. And then there are like industry veterans who are like, this is my career. This is my, this is my livelihood. And, but most people, most people were like, oh yeah, that did happen. Didn't that? Or like, you know, (laughs) I kind of blocked that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but I, it was, it was mostly really positive um, and a little melancholy and a little bittersweet. I think for people to really go down memory lane with me a little bit. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about this now, but um, and the uh, this this will kind of be framed as a uh, statement question, uh, which I love to ask statement questions. Um, but just like thinking about as being someone who writes sometimes and someone who loves storytelling and like loves being immersed in like the minutia of like a of a um a specific group or experience that's going on um i think about things like there are stories that we tell the outside world um about Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what we're doing and like and then there are stories that we tell each other Mm -hmm. and this and i guess this is a question but this is like what it feels like from you know, the outside. And I guess I'm wondering is like, like this feels, this feels like a story that people, that people within sex work, like these are stories that people might tell each other, but it's also a story that like is showcasing that to the outside world. And yeah, I guess I'm wondering, wondering what you think about that. Is that, is that true? Is that accurate? Am I, am I just going into weird whimsy land and saying stuff? Let's go to whimsy land, baby. I'm right there with you. Wonderful. Um, so I, yeah, this, I mean, this started as like something that I was kind of like confessing to one of my old friends as like being like, I think it was, um, I was talking about the, uh, the church ladies coming on the holidays Mm -hmm. to bring us trinkets and, and, um, the, the word of the good Lord and stuff like that, uh, you know, while we're in the dressing rooms, just hanging out while we're naked, we're getting dressed, we're doing our thing, we're putting on our makeup. And uh, it, it definitely, it feels like revealing kind of some intimate, some intimate memories. Um, like you brought up Foxy and Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. you know, sobbing in the, in the tanning bed, which she, boy, that was, you know, but that was the first time I ever met her. And that was the beginning of like a friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely not a story that I want to share with the general 
public. I mean, I am, so I, I, I am and I will. Um, but it, it didn't, that wasn't how I, how I initially conceptualized it. I was just kind of like, I want to tell my friends about some weird stuff that like this weird part of my life that they might not have access to, or some do and some don't, you know? Um, <laughs> and that is just like a really, yeah, just like, Sorry, it's kind of like trying to remember everything you did in college or whatever. It's just like it's a little bit <laughs> of a blur. Um, but yeah. I really do feel like it is it is like an intimate portrait of some intense things that mm-hmm. I think should be should be listened to and should be read with care. And what it wasn't my intention to reveal. It wasn't my intention to reveal people's personal details um, in the public eye. You know. It just kind of consensually happened. Yeah. That yeah. kind of leads me to a really nerdy question I want to ask you. Um, I've just <laughs> been like very deep into neorealism recently, both in film and literature. And because of that, I think I like hyper-focused on your the very first sentence of the piece, which is this is a work of truth, but not necessarily of facts. And I like really want to know what you mean by that. <laughs> Um, oh yeah yeah thinking about like the ways that we construct these truths in ways that are like yeah I don't know sometimes quote-unquote fictionalized but like fiction and fact all kind of like bleed into each other um in trying to tell what we feel are true stories so yeah yeah most of the fictionalization of this piece actually comes from its structure and its timelines Um, where I'm like, okay, that didn't happen on the same night that that happened, but that was all like one weekend and I like kind of fuzzy on the details. Um, but it's, so a work of truth, but not facts is actually something that I ripped off from Werner Herzog, if I'm being completely honest. So if we want to go there, (laughs) which is that the role, the role of the documentarian, he says, is to document truth but not necessarily facts. Or ecstatic truth, as he says. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Ecstatic truth. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's old. That's Uncle Herzog for you. You gotta yeah, you really gotta just sometimes go back to Uncle Herzog. I yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> um oh. yeah. Does that I does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. 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 I just like thinking about it. Like it, it's not so much that like I was looking for a specific answer. I just find it very interesting. This blurry line between like truth and fact and memory and fiction and all this like messy stuff that makes us human or something. I don't know. But yeah. I I just yeah, a lot of so a lot of the fictionalization of my piece really I think came from organizing it. Like with you mm-hmm. for instance, Ran is like you know, I initially had, I kind of jumped from time and place to time and place to time and place. And then eventually the story got organized into a little bit more of a flow, Mm -hmm. which has more to do with the way that I remember things than how they actually happened. Totally. Memory, human memory is fallible. And, um, I hyperbolize a little bit (laughs) to say the least in my, in my private life, as you know, um, but uh what's that saying like i feel like this is like something that old men say to each other but like never let truth get in the way of a good story 
<laughs> That's how I feel. Yeah. Honestly. I was raised in that. No, it's true. I was indoctrinated into this, like, into um, this, like, anarchistic adventurism at a really young age, as I know you were as well. And I, um, I've done a lot of things just to say I did it. And I still, Mm -hmm. like, I'll try anything twice. You know what I mean? (laughs) I looked it up. Apparently it's Mark Twain, but I think we should attribute it to Werner Herzog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. I'm going to admit a funny thing on this topic. Um, I, I do like that concept, you know, it's, which I feel like, you know, truth and facts and et cetera, like these lines can get really blurry there's obviously like there's like weird ways that I feel like people can do this um but I'm gonna admit that I kind of just did it recently um I wrote this like little mini historical piece about like uh about theater and it it does not quote real it does not quote sources it is written in a way that presents truth and is not actually rooted in facts and it which was a really funny thing to write and like recollect on where I was like, I don't know, that feels true. I mean, it's mostly true. It It's the essence of what was going on, but like it is displaced from facts, which. Are you talking about the Midsummer Playbill? <laughs> I'm talking about the Midsummer Playbill. Okay, yeah, if we could have a total aside moment. So Inman and I usually have this process where we write this thing together every year and then I go check the facts. But that didn't happen this year, in large part because I was, like, really busy with some life stuff. Um, and it was an amazing playbill. And it was also, like, I totally had this moment of being, like, didn't check any of these facts. But also nobody cares and it's okay. <laughs> but it's funny because that's usually my job. And I was like, eh, I didn't do my job this year. I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It's also – it's it's funny when your, your source material is like, – like I said, like – you know, my source material is kind of is my memory, which is mm-hmm. very like fallible, malleable, um, can superimpose things on other like superimpose memories on other memories that may not have happened like simultaneously. And in in fiction, um, I'm really heavily influenced by Jorge Luis Borges mm-hmm. and magical realism. And I think a lot about um, his extended fictional bibliographies for some of his source material for quotes that go into his stories. And that's sort of how I feel. I feel a little bit like I'm drawing from source material. That's totally. Kind of an imagination a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, just to defend myself a little bit. Um, everything I wrote was based on experiences and things that I read about. Totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't just making stuff up. But I mostly am just trying to say that you're like this act. I mean, I don't know if you ever talk about this on this podcast, but you're this amazing theater director and I'm like the boring guy who goes and checks the facts. <laughs> That's yeah, really yeah. dramaturgist. That's dramaturgist r- is an important piece. I know, but I didn't do my job this year, but that's all I'm trying to say. I'm the boring guy. <laughs> Y'all are the world builders. I'm just over here checking the facts. <laughs> um, everyone will get to experience this in in before the year is out. But Ren is selling themselves very short, right? Now. Ren <laughs> yeah, is you're an like the least boring guy writer, I know. An anyway. incredible writer and builder of worlds. 
Um, now that we've distracted ourselves thoroughly. <laughs> thoroughly. Um, this does kind of bring us to the end of our time now. Um, so I, yeah. Is there anything either of y'all um, want to say on stuff we've talked about that we did not talk about anything that you're like, Ooh, golly, I wish I talked about this, but instead I talked about, uh, uh I can't think of anything that we said in the last hour. Yeah. <laughs> Pulled a little golly, Miss Molly out of your pocket. You got it wrapping. All right. I, do you do you do y'all have anything you want to plug the like projects anything coming up that you got going on yeah i want to plug um this podcast called the strangers in a tangled wilderness podcast (laughs) and also this zine called mall parts that's like i would like to plug those two things tonight (laughs) (laughs) yeah um yeah okay well um yeah for either of y'all, um, are there, this is my funny tag question, but um, are there any places that people can find you on the internet where you would like to be found? Yeah, so I can be found. I just made an Instagram. There's nothing on it yet, but as you know, maybe by the, by the time of listening, there might be a little bit of content. Um, it's Molly, M-O-L-L-Y period B-D-A-M, B-D-A-M-N on Instagram. Wonderful. Um, can folks hope to see the uh, updates about the larger version of, of mall parts on there? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. As that comes to fruition, that's definitely where I'll be putting all that kind of information. If you want to read more, if you want to ask me questions, if you just want to reach out and say, Hey, your story was super weird. What's that? Like, what's this about? Or uh, whatever. I'd love to hear from anyone who wants to shoot me a shoot me a slide into my DMs, as the kids say. Wonderful. Um, and Ren, is there anywhere that people can find you where you would like to be found right now? Yeah, I, I like my I like my Instagram as like the public place right now, and it's just my name, Ren Arai. Um, and I mostly post about like uh, archives and radical food history and uh, my dog and cat, and occasionally like a bathroom selfie of me with dirty hair so if you're into those things you can follow me there or your cool book that just came out a while ago yeah i added an anthology called nourishing resistance with some really amazing contributors for pm press um and folks should totally check it out i'm bad at plugging myself but i need to remember that i'm actually plugging all the people who contributed um so yeah that is another thing that you can check out oh wait i have one last thing I wanted yeah, to plug the I wanted to plug the working it sex yes! anthology yeah, yeah, yeah. that just came out from PM Press that is absolutely slaps. Hell yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, it's funny, Ren, because you know, I plug your book on this podcast like every month. <laughs> and so I'm like finally, I finally have dragged you on here to say something about it yourself. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um I also maybe would plug like I I would plug maybe where Inman is recording right now, BCC Tucson, which is our kind of like little hub of autonomous activity. Um, I know that that's like, this is like a national or international podcast and that's a local place, but I think that spaces that can be structures for, um, for like a myriad of like radical projects are really important. And so I want to plug that too. Hell yeah. Yeah, it is an incredible place. And I'm hoping to maybe, yeah, I would love to see more people from the space um, 
uh, happen happen on this podcast. If you're if you're listening to this, I could also post about it in the hallway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, okay. So this brings us to kind of the last little bit of the podcast, which um, I've been calling the word of the month, and I it which feels like a very generic and boring title um, for. Uh, something called the word of the month, you know? And so listeners, if you um, can think of something better, please let me know um, because I cannot think of anything. Um, if if you make it a pun, um, I will give you a special shout out on the podcast. But so yeah, I'm just, I'm going to ask you about a word and you're going to tell me what you think about it. And then we'll go on a little etymology journey. Um, and Ren has been disqualified from this because Ren has seen this recently and um, because it is something that I discovered in my very real research of <laughs> a play that I <laughs> of a play that I just co-directed uh, called uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, my plan all along was to to like gently tease Inman about this so that they would talk about how they're an amazing director. Just so you know, just, you know, I don't know, I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe one day something I write will be featured on this podcast. Who knows? Um, anyways, okay, so Molly, what do you know about the name Robin? Robin. Um, yeah. What 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 comes to mind? What how do you think this? What do you think this name means? And how do you think that meaning came to be? Robin. Um, so my first thought, of course, is the bird. Um, my second thought goes right to Robin Hood. Oh, uh, yeah. I have. I you blindsided me. Go go nuts. Tell me all about it. I have no idea. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm going to give the long answer or the end of the answer first because and then work our way backwards. Um, but first, wait, can I so um, disqualify myself? Because I actually don't know the, <laughs> the etymology of this. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah, please, please, please. But I don't. I'm I don't back know. on the board. Right? I, I'm back on the board to say I don't know. Please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Any wild guesses, Ren? Um, I think I would assume that it was some sort of like nickname of Robert at some point or something like a thousand years ago. I don't know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, uh, the name that we're going to slowly work back from is um, you might think that uh, Robin is just a nice little, nice little bird name. Um, so uh, Robin is a name that at some point in uh, like English folklore uh, was completely synonymous with the devil. Um, and to kind of break that apart, so um, Ro or you know Rob is short for Robert, and we do get Rob from in that shortening into the name Robin. Um, but not directly. We get it because um, Hob was also uh, short for Rob or just a variation of Rob. And um, so Hob from Robert. Um, and the way that Hob gets attached to this other piece of the puzzle is 
Um, if you do, you, are you familiar with the word hobgoblin? Yes. Yeah. What do you think sets a hobgoblin apart from a regular goblin? Is it their stature? Um, it is not their stature. Oh. Um, it is that hob also means elf. Mm. Um, and so a hobgoblin is an elf goblin. And what, pray tell, might be the difference? How might attributing elf to goblin make it different? Um, so goblins, it's, no, um, it's, it's, a, it's about way things were, way ideas were conceived of. So goblins were mischievous and like, you know, chaotic neutral. They're like, they're, they're not necessarily mal-intented, but like they uh, uh, are absolutely mischievous. Um, and attributing elf to it, like might imply that they are um, sometimes helpful. Like they're just as likely, mm-hmm. just as likely to like bake you a pie um, and do your laundry while you're away as like shit in your sink and like burn <laughs> half your house down right. as like a fun prank. But goblins are just shitting like, in your sink. <laughs> Same, honestly. Yeah. 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 So hobgoblin, helpful goblin, potentially. Um, but because Robin is also synonymous with the devil from like other um, sources, um, the name Robin, which is literally like like Rob plus Goblin or Rob in or Roblin, I would prefer to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> we also get like other attributions, which is um, uh, mostly tying it to, and this is how it ties back to Midsummer Night's Dream, is Robin Goodfellow or Puck, um, which with this framework translates the name Robin Goodfellow to devil might kill you helpful lad i feel like there are a lot of helpful lads that might kill you i also identify as chaotic neutral for what it's worth Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't know if i'm supposed to say that with my pronouns or whatever (laughs) um I'm going to start asking people that from now on. That is going in the introductions. As someone who doesn't play uh, D&D, I would love to try it. I just like haven't had the, the time in my life to commit to it. I like feel like I need either. to go. I, I feel like I need to go look up what I am, you know, because I don't really know. Because that's yeah. where that comes from, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You like to hang yeah. out in chaotic neutral with me, but I'm not that's where you're sure where that's where you live. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely somewhere on the yeah. chaos side, though. Um, I kind of think well, you're chaotic good, honestly. That was my first yeah. thought, but I don't know enough. I, I'm going to do a lot of research later. Inman, <laughs> in, in, yeah. do you have, like, an identification on this? Um, I think you're probably chaotic good, but it's also this funny thing where I feel like a lot of anarchists, like, really want to, like, like, own the idea of being chaotic neutral, but they're really just chaotic good no but i mean you what do you identify as oh um i'm earnest i feel like i um you know i hope to be chaotic good but i feel like i probably mostly come off as um uh chaotic uh disorganized (laughs) to combine some some theories chaotic chaotic (laughs) um but yeah 
Um, cool. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and for learning more than you ever needed to know about the name Robin. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Any parting words? Um, I think Molly, you had a, another plug you wanted to do. Yes, I do. I'm going to be appearing on baby's second podcast ever. Um, the Anarcho Geek oh, Power yeah. Hour with um, How could I forget to plug this? I know, I know, me too. Um with uh esteemed guests Annie Rose Malamet, who I wanna say is definitely the nation's, if not the world's leading expert on lesbian vampires. Um Lizanne Cobalt Chrome and Io, uh the usual host of the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, will be taking over that and we're gonna be uh changing the name. So we're going to get real messy. We're going to get real chaotic with it. It's going to be really fun. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. And specifically folks, if you want to hear Molly and um, other rad as fuck folks um, talk about the depiction of sex work in like mainstream media, um, ways that's done well, ways that's probably done horribly, um, then give that a listen when it comes out. Um, and you can find that at tangledwilderness.org or whenever, wherever you get podcasts. Um, Yay! Cool. Well, goodbye, everyone. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Whisper its name in their ear, or shout it over the DJ set. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe, or, you know, whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god, but really just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show, and honestly, one of the best ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity... Consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And really what that money helps us do is put out more podcasts. It helps pay audio editors. It helps pay our reader. It helps pay the authors that submit um, the features, um, transcribers, all that stuff. We're we're never gonna, we're not going to stop ever producing uh, podcast content, but with your support, we can definitely produce more. And now for some updates. We have a thirty percent off sale on both of our books right now. Get Escape from Incel Island by Margaret Kiljoy and Try Anarchism for Life by Cindy Brock Milstein for 30% off in honor of May Day. The sale goes through May 7th at tangledwilderness.org. Use the promo code MAYDAY, all caps. We put out a new podcast recently called the Anarcho Geek Power Hour. It's a blast. It's for people who love movies and hate cops. It'll feature several different Stranger Collective members. On the latest episode, we talk with Jonas Goonface about The Last of Us. 
We are about to start a long-anticipated Kickstarter for Penumbra City, the TTRPG that we've been writing. The Kickstarter launches on June 1st. Watch the game that inspired Confession to a Dead Man come to life. Our theme music is by Margaret Killjoy. Our zine layout is by Cassandra. Our reader is Bee Flowers. And thanks to the lovely Mountain Goblins that mail out the feature every month. That's all my plugs, except for a very special series of shoutouts to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast, as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Anonymous, Funder, Janice and Odell, Oxalis, Paige, Hans, Ali, Paparuna, Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Haas the Dog. Thanks so much for your support. It means so much to us and has allowed us to get so much done as a collective. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Next month, we have a zine about first aid and an interview with someone who teaches it. Stay well. We hope you come back. <laughs>